0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. All right, good morning, Bereans. For our study this morning, we're going to be looking at the Tower of Babel. Now, this is probably a familiar story to most Christians. I mean, you probably heard about this in Sunday school, but... You didn't hear too much about it, probably, okay? <laughs> what, you, what you may not understand about this story is that this story is at the heart of the Old Covenant worldview. This is a major story. This is a major incident that happened here, I think beyond what most people understand it to be. <clears throat> the story of Babel tells of humanity's united rebellion against Yahweh, and that's really what it is. They're just rebelling. They're actually going to war with God. And in this story, we have an anti-God leader of humanity whose name was Nimrod, and he led an organized rebellion against God's command to disperse over the whole earth. That's what God told the people. I want you to disperse, spread out over the whole earth. We see that Genesis 9:1. and God blessed Noah, his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God said, after they got off the ark, spread out, go around, fill up the earth. Now, these words kind of reiterate the original Edenic intention. You know, God told them to spread out, go out. But instead of obeying and having Yahweh be their God, the people gathered together to build a tower. And in their building of what may have been a a water-safe tower, and we'll talk about that in a minute, okay, to protect them against the future flood from heaven, the people exposed their disobedience and distrust of Yahweh's word and His promise. Now, from the writings of the Second Temple period. Now, the Second Temple period is the time the Bible is being, the New Testament is being written. And all these writers are living in that period, and they're familiar with the literature of that time. So this literature has a big impact on all the people there. They know this literature. Whether you you, know, you talk about the pseudepigrapha, uh, you know, I, I don't believe it's Scripture, although I've been accused of saying that. Although, that's why I like that everything's on video. I say, well, show me where I said it. And then they backtrack because I didn't say it because I don't believe it's Scripture. But I believe it informed Scripture. I believe it was very helpful to the writers. And they actually quote it in Scripture. So, But during the Second Temple period, the people of that time, the writings of that time, they believed that the reason that wickedness so permeated the earth was because of three incidents. There's three reasons men were so evil. Number one was the fall of Adam and Eve. And we get that, right? That's probably where we'd all stop. Why are men evil? Adam fell in the garden, right? Second one would be what? Okay, the watchers in Genesis 6. All right, sons of God came down to the daughters of men, intermarried. That would be, what would be the third one? Thank you. (laughs) I was going to say, hopefully you (laughs) can catch the third one. Okay, all right. The Tower of Babel, okay. So so in in Genesis 3, we have the fall. In Genesis 6, we have... God's leaving heaven, come down, intermarrying with people. And in Genesis 11, it reaches a summit in the Tower of Babel. All three events triggered divine judgments of great and enduring consequences. Every one of these triggered judgments, all right? Now, in our current day, mainstream scholarship, which for the most part is liberal, they entirely reject the Genesis account of the confusion of languages They say it's impossible because it conflicts with what are considered well-established facts about the history and evolution of language. So they just say, oh, this doesn't work out. No. (laughs) Modern scholars simply assume the Tower of Babel story to be a non-historic Jewish mythology. And this is because these liberal scholars' naturalism causes them to reject anything that's supernatural in the Bible. And there's a lot of people in that. They're just naturalists. If it's supernatural, they have to reject it. There's many in the Preterist movement that reject anything supernatural. There's no demons. There's no other gods. It's just, you know, the miraculous. They just don't want to believe it, okay? (coughs) In the Tower of Babel event, if it's a real event that occurred in the past, which I believe it is, it's reasonable to expect that variations of the story would appear in different literature in other ancient cultures and peoples around the world. Does that make sense? We're gonna talk about this more in a little bit, but Nimrod goes by many names in history. Okay. Um, Nanurta was the Assyrian god of hunting. That's his name in Assyria. Gilgamesh. How many of you are familiar with Gilgamesh, the epic of Gilgamesh? Okay, Gilgamesh. Amenhotep uh, of the 18th dynasty. And interesting, there's a Chaldean account of the Tower of Babel and the global deluge with Babylonian in, on the Babylonian tablets. So they just kind of basically tell the, sto- the same story. The Tower, of Bar- the Tower of Babel narrative also has parallels in Enuma Elish, the Babylonian account of creation. So you look at all these different accounts and different cultures, and they they have the same stories in them. You know, they have the story of the flood. They have the story of the Tower of Babel. Why is that? We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Let's look at our text. Genesis 11:1. <clears throat> now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. Now, if you start reading in chapter 11, you'll probably just say, okay, one language, good, let's go on. But if you started in chapter 10 or before, you're going to scratch your head here and say, what's this about? Because in chapter 10, it says this. From these, the coastland people spread into the lands, each with his own language. They're like, wait a minute, we're in 10, everybody's got different languages. Well, let's look at 1020. These are the sons of Ham by their clans and their languages. 31. These are the sons of Shem by their clans and their languages. So how are we supposed to understand this? The Tower of Babel incident, though following the table of nations in the present literary arrangement, actually precedes chronologically the dispersal of the nations. Okay, the story of the Tower of Babel is basically a flashback that explains the division of the Earth in Peleg's, Peleg's time in uh, Genesis 10:25. So what he does, is he first describes the spread of the peoples and languages in chapter 10, and then he describes why. Why did that happen? How did that happen in chapter 11? So that's why it seems like they got different languages, and they all have one language, OK? But Genesis 1 through 11 is a unit. And really, it comes full circle. It starts with Eden and goes to Babel. And they're both remembered for the expulsion of their residents. Okay, they got driven out of Eden. They got driven out of Babel. Verse 2 says, And as the peoples migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, according to Strong's, he says Shinar means a plain in Babylon. Brown, Driver, and Briggs' definition of Shinar is the ancient name for the territory later known as Babylonia and Chaldea. The Hebrew word translated Shinar is Shinar, which is equivalent to the ancient Egyptian word uh, that refers to southern Mesopotamia and may be a var- variant of the Akkadian word for the ancient Sumerian civilization. So they're, they're arguing about what exactly this word means, what is this location? The Hebrew word Bavel, translated Babel in 11.9, is also used elsewhere in the Bible as referring to a city or a kingdom of Babylon. And this has led many to identify the Tower of Babel as located in Babylon, the ancient city south of present-day Baghdad. You know, where it was actually, you know, some people have claimed to have found the tower. Uh, there's a lot of discrepancies here, but let's just stick with the fact this story is true, although we might not know where it is right now, all right? Verse 3 says and they said to one another come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly and they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar now using baked bricks and bitumen is basically asphalt or it's kind of a glue like substance that you know they would use to pitch the idea of pitch you know to to, to hold this the mortar kind of to hold these bricks together and they built a tower that was both strong and waterproof and it's important that it's waterproof because they're still mad about the flood, okay? And They're saying, we're not going to let this happen again. We'll build us a tower. We'll be out of the water. If God does this again, he won't get us. Now, that's, that's their thinking <laughs> at this time. Verse 4, they then said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower and its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth, Okay? Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower, which top is in the heavens. Now, at some point after the flood, the descendants of Noah, they begin to build this Tower of Babel. Now, building of the tower was, in fact, an attempted war with God. That's basically what's going on here. They're saying, you're not going to tell us what to do. You're not going to boss us around. And they're just literally rebelling. This is this is a very significant thing here, okay? We see this in the writings of the rabbis. The rabbis of the 5th century They preserved this interpretation in their commentary on Genesis. According to Midrash, the people at Shinar said to themselves, God has no right to choose the upper world, heaven, for himself and to leave the lower world, earth, to us. Therefore, we will build a tower with an idol on top, holding a sword so that it appears to wage war with God. That's what they're trying to do. Listen, people, God has no right. That's the stupidest thing you could ever say, okay? God has every right to do whatever he wants to do, okay? So the Tower of Babel story is regarded by scholars as one of Mesopotamia's famous man-made sacred mountains. And that's what a ziggurat is. They, they built a ziggurat. A ziggurat is like, you know, the God's dwelled in the mountains, and this is a man-made mountain for God to dwell on. The Encyclopedia Britannica says this. As noted above, Babylon's, Babylonian ziggurats were large pyramidal step towers the ruins of the largest remaining ziggurat are 335 feet. We don't care about the meters. And eight were Americans. And 80 feet high. This ziggurat is thought to have been more than twice the, that height originally. The height of a modern 16-story building. So that's that's a pretty big, you know, that's a pretty big tower. The, the whole idea, the top of it's in the clouds. All right. So we have to get this in our mind. Ziggurats were divine abodes. There were places where Mesopotamians believed heaven and earth intersected. And the nature of this structure makes evident the purpose for building it. They were trying to bring the divine down to earth. They weren't trying to get to heaven. They were trying to bring God down. All right? And once people reached the top of the staircase, the belief was that heavenly beings would descend to meet them at the apex of the ziggurat. All right? A reference to ziggurat appears in the pre-biblical Nisan Temple inscription which says that Warad Sin, king of Larsa, made it a mountain, made it as a mountain, and made its head touch the heavens. Now, this description mirrors what the people of Shinar declare. They say, "Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens." Now, this idea of building this tower and then having God come down and meet with them, when Yahweh appeared in a dream to Jacob, it's most likely that he was on the top of a ziggurat staircase, not a ladder. Okay, the Bible says a ladder. You think about a ladder, you know, just got one rung at a time, you're climbing. No, that's probably not the idea here, he said. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder. I think that's a reference to a ziggurat. Set up on the earth, and the top of it reached the heavens. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending. You see that? Heaven's coming down. The angels of God are coming down on that. So that, that gives us an understanding of what exactly is going on there. It says, the top is in the heavens. Now, the Jewish historian Josephus, who links Nimrod to the building of the Tower of Babel, he writes this. Now it was was Nimrod who excited them to such an affront and contempt of God. He was the grandson of Ham, the son of Noah. So he was the great-grandson of Noah. A bold man and a great strength of hand. He persuaded them not to ascribe to God as it was, though his means net they, through his means that they were happy, but to believe that their own courage which procured that happiness. So we don't need God to be happy; we create our own happiness. He's basically saying, he also gradually changed the government into tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God but to bring them into a constant dependence upon His power. So Nimrod saying, I want you to depend on me; don't be dependent on God. He also said he would be revenger, revenged on God. So he's going to pay God back, basically, what he's saying here. He's going to be revenge on God if he should have a mind to drown the world again. So this is the idea. They're concerned about the flood, okay? For that he would build a tower too high for the waters to be able to reach and that he would avenge himself on God for destroying their forefathers. He's going to avenge himself on God. This is an evil man. You'll understand this, hopefully, as we go into this a little more. So the motive for building the Tower of Babel, according to Josephus, was to protect, one of the reasons was to protect humanity from another flood. Now, of course, the construction of the Tower of Babel ended when God gave them a show of power and just changed their language and dispersed them all. All right? That was the end. They couldn't communicate anymore, so that's the end of the building project. Now, according to Josephus, it was mainly Nimrod who persuaded his contemporaries to build the tower. But there's there is other rabbinical sources that say no, Nimrod separated from the builders, he wasn't really part of it. So you got conflicting stories there. Some among the sinful generation, they even wanted war against God. I mean, they literally think we're going to fight God, we're going to go against God. In the Sibylline books cited by Josephus, it says this. They were encouraged in this wild undertaking by the fact that arrows which they shot into the sky Fell back dripping with blood. So the people really believe that they could wage war against the inhabitants of heaven. Now, obviously, this is some kind of fantastic story they made up. We just shot arrows into heaven, they came back all bloody. We were killing the people in heaven. You know, it's just absolutely ridiculous. But men are evil, and that's their intention here, okay? Again, they're mad, and so they're going to try to get at God. He says, and the, the, one of the purposes of making this tower was let's make a name for ourselves. They wanted to exalt their own name. Listen, the purpose of the building project, the purpose of everything should be to bring glory to God, not promote our own names, not to promote ourselves. And that's what Solomon does when he built the first temple, saying, now Yahweh has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the, pl- I have risen in the place of David, my father, and sit on the throne of Israel, as Yahweh promised. And I have built the house for the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. All right, so Solomon says, I'm building this for the name of God. This is not my undertaking. I'm not trying to promote myself. I'm not trying to do something about this. I'm trying to promote God. But they were doing it to build a name for themselves. And then in 11.5 it says, And Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. What does it mean that Yahweh came down? Was he somewhere else? Where was he? What does omnipresence mean? Omnipresence means all of God is everywhere. Don't think about that too long. That'll hurt. Okay? But, I mean, so what does he, what's he say here? I'm coming down. Well, I think we see the same idea here when you're look, thinking about omnipresence. Look at 2 Kings 17, 18. Therefore Yahweh was very angry with Israel, and he removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah remained. So, I like the way the Christian Standard Bible translates the Hebrew word panim, as presence here. Panim means face. You know, when you're someone, someone, with someone face-to-face, you're in their presence. So how did Yahweh remove them from His presence, again, if He's omnipresent? Well, what it's saying here, it's talking about the removal of them from the land. He sent Israel, the northern kingdom, into Assyrian cap- captivity. Out of the land meant out of His presence. Okay? Yahweh is omnipresence, which means, again, all of God is in every place. Yahweh is capable of being everywhere at the same time. His divine presence encompasses the whole universe. There's no location where He doesn't inhabit. So you literally can't be out of His presence. But to be out of His presence, when He said, they're out of the land, they're out of My presence, they're out of His favor, they're away from Him. At that time, they believed that land, different lands were run by different gods. So to be out of the land of Israel was to be away from the God of Israel And out of his favor. And let me just say here that only Yahweh is omnipresent. Other beings, Satan's not omnipresent, though people act like he is. He's everywhere. He does everything, you know. Gave me a flat tire on the way to church today, you know. The silly stuff that people come up with to blame on Satan, you know. But that includes watchers, angels, demons. They're they're restricted, given place, and a given time. They're not omnipresent. If they're here, they're not there. And if they're there, they're not here. Okay? Saying Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower. This is a, it's called an anthropomorphism. All right? It's, a, it's describing God in a way that men understand. Okay? Basically. He came down means all right, his attention is on that place. He's checking it out. He's, he didn't have to really move or go anywhere. He's checking it out. Anthropomorphism is a humanization of God just, again, for our understanding. Okay? Verses 6 and 7 says, And Yahweh said, Behold, they're one people, and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse the language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. All right, come, let us. Who's the let us? Who's, Who's this talking about? God's talking. Who's he talking about? Some people say this is the Trinity. I don't think it's the Trinity. I don't think that's what he's talking about. It's interesting that he said he uses this, this idea of multiple divine beings. Let us... And then it says, so Yahweh scattered them. Switches back to Yahweh. One being does the judgment. Who are these divine beings? I think they must include the heavenly host of 1 Kings 22, the heavenly beings of Job 1.6, the watchers, the seraphs of Isaiah 6, this is God's heavenly host. And I know most people don't think of it this way, but we've got a whole series on this if, you, if you're not up to speed and you want to go back and check it out. God had a heavenly host, other gods that he consulted with, that he worked with, not that he needed any wisdom or any understanding. It's just how he had a heavenly family that was made up of these gods. And that's what he said. Let us go down. And then if you go to uh, 1 Kings 22 and read the story, it's pretty interesting because God asked them, hey, what should we do to... You know, get him to fall. Oh, I got an idea, and he's taking different ideas from the different gods. And he says, okay, you go ahead. That sounds like a good idea. You go ahead and do that. So, yeah, read 1 Kings 22. It'll give you some understanding of what we're talking about here. Catch up a little bit. God said, I'm going to confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Now, some scholars believe that this judgment also involved the implementation of ethnic and racial distinctions in humankind also. And the table of nations in chapter 10 may imply this. So it's not that their language changed. Now their culture changes. I mean, this total change, and these people are there, and they they don't understand what's going on at all. They can't understand one another. So the building program is done. Verse 1 said the whole earth had one language. Now they have different language. They cannot communicate. They cannot work together. So God scatters them. He makes them leave. So Yahweh dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, And they left off building the city. So God forced them to do what they refused to do, voluntarily. Namely, scatter over the face of the earth. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there Yahweh confused the language of all the earth. And from there, Yahweh dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Babel. The word Babel sounds very much like the Hebrew word for confusion. Okay, But in ancient Akkadian language of that part of the world, Babel Babel meant gateway to God. So that's what they were trying to build, the gateway to God. But what God did was confuse them so they couldn't do that anymore, stop the building program. From there, Yahweh dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, after the confusion of the languages, the people scatter. Now, you can imagine if you were there, okay, you're part of this building project... And all of a sudden, there's judgment, and you can't even talk to anybody anymore. They're they're talking all these different languages. You can't communicate, and then you're literally scattered. How God scattered them, I'm not sure, but it says he did the scattering. So they left. You can imagine that this amazing story would have been passed down from generation to generation. This is an oral culture. They don't write a lot. They, They have storytellers, and they tell the story over and over. So you're sharing this story. You're telling your kids. Their kids are telling their kids about what happened at this time. Carried to their new settlements, wherever they ended up, into their new culture, their new language. Now, the Genesis stories, including the creation story, the fall of Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden, Noah and the Flood, Tower of Babel, confusion of languages, they have been found in hundreds of cultures throughout the world. These same stories. Different names, okay? Same stories. Now, this troubles some people, thinking that the Bible borrowed stories from other cultures. Oh, they just borrowed that. And I've seen it really upset some people, you know. Well, this isn't true because this is what the other culture believed, that same thing, and they just borrowed it. But remember, people, everybody was one language and one culture until Babel. So when Babel spread, they're telling the same story. Now they're telling it in their culture with maybe a different name for the god but the Bible is not borrowing from other cultures. It's all the same story. If all we had was Genesis, boom, that would be the end. Okay, that's it. Disperse them and we go on. But we don't. Wait, there's more. We can go into Deuteronomy and find some more on this, okay? But I want you to understand this because it's, it's important because I've heard people really stumble when, they, when they're reading like uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh. And they go, well, this sounds like the Bible. Yeah, because that's where it came from. See, they, they all had this, they're all together. One history. These stories happened to all these people pre-being scattered. So when they scattered, they just took them with them. Now the names were changed, and hundreds of years later people go, oh, that's Gilgamesh, that's not right. you know. And then they don't understand what's going on here. They all started in the same place. That's why the stories are so similar in so many different cultures, because these cultures at one time were all one culture and one people. Now, if we take this and go into Deuteronomy now, Keeping in mind what we just read. Deuteronomy 32, 8, and 9. This is uh, an important text in the divine, cult, uh, divine worldview there, the viewpoint. Uh, it says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, when did that happen? At the Tower of Babel. We just read that, right? When he divided mankind. So that's what this is talking about back in Genesis 10 and 11. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people's according to the number of the sons of God. But Yahweh's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. Okay? So he says, when he divided mankind, we see that in Deuteronomy 32, and then we see the same thing in Genesis 11:9. the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. That's the same, it's talking about the same thing. Yahweh, in effect, divides the people of the whole nations that were no longer going to be in a relationship with him. In other words... This is the final straw, okay? We could say this is a straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. God says, I'm done with you people. You just keep violating what I ask you to do. You won't listen to me. You won't worship me. You won't do what you're told. I am done. Okay, God reaches the end of his rope here, and he says, I'm finished with you. I'm done with you. That's it. No more. And so he got rid of all these nations. He said, I'm done with you. I'm leaving you. He decided to choose a new people and enter into a relationship with a new people that didn't even exist at that time. All right, but he is done. So Genesis 11 is the end when God says, I'm done with you people. It says he divided mankind and he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. So all the nations that were there at that time were placed under the authority of members of Yahweh's divine council, other gods. God apportioned or he handed out the nations to the sons of God. And we are told God allotted the gods to those nations. So God decreed in the wake of Babel that the other nations he had forsaken would have these other gods to rule over them. Different territories, different allotments have different gods over them. So the other nations were assigned to these lesser gods, and it's a judgment from the Most High Yahweh. Now, that this interpretation is sound and accurate, I think, is made clear by a parallel passage Remember, and, and in this passage, God is talking to the nation Israel. It's in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 4:19 and 20. He tells the nation Israel, Beware lest you ri- rise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven, you'll be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that Yahweh your God has allotted to the peoples. And he, You're worshiping those gods. They're not your gods. Those are the nation's gods. I've given them to them. He allotted those to the peoples under the whole heaven. But Yahweh has taken you, speaking of Israel, and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. Okay, the host of heaven here refers to sentient, created, spiritual beings which reside in the heavens. This is God's family, all right? And notice here that these hosts of heavens have been allotted to peoples. The word allotted is the Hebrew word halach, and it means apportioned or assigned. Here we are told that Yahweh has assigned the hosts of heaven to the peoples of all the earth. That's all non-Israelites. And listen, there's no Israelites at this time, okay? It's just people. There's no Israel has not been created yet. So God was saying, if you don't want to obey me, I'm not interested in being your God. I'll match you up with some other God. And those disinherited would be in spiritual bondage to these corrupt sons of God. But he said, Israel is going to be my people. And from that fateful decision at Babel onward, the story of the Tanakh is about Israel versus the disinherited nations. That's the whole rest of the Tanakh is about this. From 11 on, I mean, from 12 on, it's about you got the nations and you got Israel. You got Yahweh and you got the corrupt gods battling the whole time. That's what the rest of the Tanakh deals with. So Yahweh disinherited the nations, and in this very next chapter of Genesis, he calls Abram out of Mesopotamia. So what Yahweh did is he took a man from the heart of the rebellion. Mesopotamia. This is where the towers, This is where the ba- battle is. This is where the corruption is. And he calls Abram right out of that corruption to be his child. And In chapter 12 of Genesis, Now Yahweh said to Abram, <clears throat> Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you And make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and he who dishonors you, I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All right, he just dispersed the nations in chapter 11. And in chapter 12, he says, I'm going to use Abraham to bless all those families, all those nations that I just got rid of. Through Abraham, you're going to be blessed. He enters into this covenant, and right away makes a promise that these nations will be blessed through Abraham's descendants. Now, one thing I think this helps us understand, are you familiar with the doctrine of Israel only? Many of you are familiar with that. I think this understanding this corrects that misunderstanding of that doctrine. Those who hold to this false teaching say that the term Gentiles only refers to the ten northern tribes of Israel, and thus the Bible was written solely and entirely to national Israel. And therefore, there's nothing in the Bible for us. It's all about national Israel. Okay? And now, so they also believe everything ended in eighty seventy. I mean everything. That includes salvation. No salvation after AD 70. No sin. No spiritual death. No church. No law. Listen, if you believe this is true, why do you even bother with the Bible? These, these guys are in groups on Facebook arguing, trying to prove their point. I'm like... Your point is, there is nothing. Why are you on there trying to prove that? Go away. I mean, once you think this is true, then, you know, go on and live your miserable life. And your life is miserable because you don't believe in God, okay? You don't think any of this is for us. And it's just, you know, they just make a mess of the doctrine, okay? They just turn the Bible on its head, and it's, and they have some good points. And that's what, you know, I think makes people say, well, maybe there's something to this. Listen, I believe that Yahweh has always had a plan for Gentiles. Always. That's who he started with. There was no Israel. First 11 chapters, it's all Gentiles he's dealing with. All nations, okay? He rejects them, but in the rejection, you know, I'm going to get you back, alright? I believe that Yahweh loves Gentiles. I believe that he saves them, and I believe the Bible is the word of the living God, and it's relevant today to us. Now, these Israel-only people, they're right when they say that the term nations or Gentiles is used of the northern kingdom of Israel. That's true let me make this clear the northern kingdom of israel is included in the term nations or gentiles but it's not exclusive of it the greek term ethnos can be used of the 10 northern tribes at times the 10 northern tribes are called goi or ethnos but these terms are not exclusive to the northern kingdom of israel i think it was in ephesians chapter 2 i spent two weeks just dealing with this whole idea of israel only and the goi and the nations and what that all means all right Now, remember what we said earlier, that from the writings of the second temple period, they believed that the reason wickedness so permeated the earth was because of these three incidents, okay? The fall of Adam and Eve, sin of the watchers, the Tower of Babel, okay? The fall of man in Genesis 3 was caused, I believe, by the watchers. Satan was not a snake. It wasn't someone of the animal kingdom. He was a divine being. He was a watcher. He tempted Adam and Eve, got them to fall. So we go to Genesis 6. Genesis 6 is all about the Watchers. They leave heaven. They corrupt mankind. Why did they do that? Well, because right after Genesis 3, God came to them and He promised them the gospel. Okay, proto-evangelium. Genesis 3:15. I'm going to send someone to fix this mess. So they said, Okay, we got to stop that. So let's let's corrupt the human race so the Savior can't come through the race. You know, it'll be a hybrid of God and and, and man. And so that I believe that was the whole point of that Genesis. Six, incursion. And then we get to the Tower of Babel. I believe this is also caused by the watchers. Now, hopefully you're asking, how do you get the watchers at the Tower of Babel? You didn't see them? Huh? You didn't see that in the text? That's a good question. Let me show you where I get this from, okay? Genesis 10, 8-10. through Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before Yahweh. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before Yahweh. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Achad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. Okay? So the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So it seems like in a lot of ancient literature talks about this, that Nimrod was the founder, he was the first king of Babel. Oliver R. Blosser writes... Is he says, it is possible that Sargon of Argade, who many secular historians regard as the first ruler of Babylon, may be the Nimrod of Genesis 8, 10, 8-10. Many people in ancient times had more than one name. References probably shadow Genesis 1. So he's saying, yeah, there were different people that claimed to be the king of Babel, but they had different names, and so he thinks it has something to do with Nimrod also. It says of Nimrod, he was a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter. He was a mighty hunter. Now, all three of these words mighty here are the Hebrew word gabor. Does that ring a bell with anybody? The word gabor takes us back to Genesis 6. Okay? The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old Men of renown. Alright, so we have the sons of God here in verse 2 and 4. They're rebellious divine beings from God's heavenly hosts. They're also called watchers. They've taken the form of masculine human creatures. These God's married women of the human race, thus violating the heavenly earthly division that Yahweh established. And this hybrid offspring of this abominable union, they're called Nephilim. Nephilim were giants. All right with physical superiority, and therefore establish themselves as men of renown for their physical power and military might. Now, the Nephilim are cast as mighty men, men of renown. Mighty men here is gibor, all right? Men of renown is literally men of the name. So Nimrod is connected with the Nephilim. He was a giant. Adam Clark, the famous commentator, also cites with the Syriatic Targum and said, Nimrod was called a giant. Now, Annette Yoshiko, in her Cambridge University book, Fallen Angels and the History of Judaism and Christianity, states, the Nephilim of Genesis 6:4 are always grouped together with the gibberim, which are the progeny of the watchers and human women. So she's connecting him. You know, he's called the Gibor, connecting him with the Nephilim, saying these are, this is what we're talking about. The Nephilim are half God, half man, okay? They're hybrid beings that were created in Genesis 6. Now, it says here, he's a mighty man. He's a mighty hunter before Yahweh. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter. That sounds good, doesn't it? A mighty hunter. Hey, this guy sounds pretty good. Well, the Hebrew alphabet has no vowels. And so much is lost in this translation, but there's an ancient commentary, the Jerusalem Targum, which is a Jewish rabbinic paraphrase of the Tanakh, and it more accurately describes Nimrod this way. Powerful in hunting and wickedness before Yahweh, he was a hunter of the sons of men. And he said to them, Depart from the judgment of the Lord and adhere to the judgment of Nimrod. So they're taking the same text here in Genesis, And they're making it say, he's a hunter, he's a mighty hunter, but he's hunting men, okay? And he's full of wickedness, and he's hunting down these men, and he's killing them, all right? So is that accurate? I don't know. I really don't, but uh, like I said, there's there's a lot of stuff that points in this direction, okay? I think Isaiah wrote some stuff that shed some light on this. And Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, they're both stories about Let's look at Isaiah, Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. How are you fallen from heaven? Most people say this is the fall of Lucifer. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How are you cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low? You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Does that sound like someone who's in rebellion against God? Oh, absolutely. Now, the parallels between Genesis 3, Genesis 11, Isaiah 14, and Ezekiel 28, you can see them there if you look at these passages. Now, the passage here in Isaiah and the one in Ezekiel 28, they're literally about an evil tyrant king. All right? It says that, okay? It says that in the text. Uh, this is the king of Tyre and Ezekiel. This is talking about the king of Babylon here. But their story is told of an ancient story of a divine being who fell from paradise due to rebellion. So he's lumping this in. He's telling this divine story. And he's saying, you're, you're falling in the same line. And I think Nimrod fell in line with this. And he's building this tower. And the purpose is to literally overthrow God. Let me give you a quote from Michael Heiser. Heiser says 99% of Second Temple Judaism believed. Now, what he means by that is in their writings of Second Temple Judaism, this is what they believed, this is what they taught. He's not, you know, surveying every person at the time. What do you believe? What do you believe? He's talking about their writings, okay? All right? They believe that the reason wickedness so permeates the earth is not just an extension and is in large part not even linked to what happened with Adam and Eve, but the reason that people are always and universally thoroughly wicked is because of what the watchers did. Now watch what he says. he says. Everybody in Paul's circle, everybody in Second Temple Judaism, with the exception of four intertestamental references in intertestamental literature. In other words, all the literature from the Second Temple, you can find four references that will contradict this. Everything else is in agreement. Everything says that the reason for the proliferation of evil is the sin of the watchers. Everything. And so if that's true, and I believe it is, is—that this is Heiser's strength, Second Temple literature. I see the watchers involved in Genesis 3. I see them involved in 6, and I see them involved in 11. And, and I guess really the watchers being involved is a second generation watcher, a hybrid being, a God-man, you know, a Nephilim. And the purpose of this, the purpose of everything that the watchers did was to separate man from God. We don't understand. I mean, the, lit- second tess- the second type of literature tells us that when God brought Adam and Eve into the garden, they didn't like it. They were jealous. And so they got them kicked out. All right? And everything they did, again, Genesis 6 was to corrupt the race. Genesis 11, you know, get in a battle with God. We're, we're not going to put up with this, God. We don't want this. Notice what John says. 1 John 3 eight. he says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. For this reason, the Son of God appeared. Was the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil? What are the works of the devil that Yeshua appeared to destroy? It's my understanding that what He's talking about here, the works of the devil, is to separate man from God. That's what the devil's point is. I want to separate man from God, and that's why we see Him doing in Genesis 3, and Genesis 6, and Genesis 11. And chapter 11 is the climax. Where God is basically, I'm done with this rebellion. I'm done with this constant thing. You know. And again, it's men's fault because men are following these Nephilim. They're doing what they shouldn't be doing. In Genesis 6, these women married these gods. In Genesis 3, they listened to the, the gods and they fell. All right? And it com- culminated in chapter 11. That's the climax. God's done and he just gives up and turns them over to other gods. And he leaves and he starts all over. And that's why all through the Bible you see Yahweh, the God of Israel. I'm not their God. I'm Israel's God. They have their own gods. I'm Israel's God. Okay? That's it. God's forever done with the nations? No, he's not. And like I said, when he called Abraham, he promised Abraham and the blessing there, I'm going to use you to be a blessing to all these nations that I just got rid of. So after about 3,000 years after Babel, Yeshua the Christ, the Son of God, He's born, born of a virgin. He is crucified, He is buried, and on the third day He rises from the dead, He ascends to heaven, and on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came to earth to inhabit the temple not built with bricks, but with living stones. A temple not in Babel, on top of a ziggurat, but a temple in Jerusalem, in the upper room. The temple is on earth, is the church, God's church. Now, the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost is often associated with Babel. And what's happening at Pentecost is the reversal of Babel, it's the undoing of Babel. And you can see that as you look at the different texts. Now, at Pentecost, you got people of many languages. They gather together and they hear the gospel in one language. So you got all these languages. We got one language, then a whole bunch of languages at Babel. Now you got a whole bunch of languages and you're hearing the gospel in one language. This is being reversed. God said, Okay, I'm done. I'm calling the nations back to myself now. Look at this text in uh, in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost. And at the sound of the multitude, at the sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in our own language? So, what was the gift here? The gift of hearing or the gift of speaking? They're hearing in their own language. They're not saying they're speaking in their own language. Okay? Parthenians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling us in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, the multiplicity of nations represented at Pentecost is a link to Babel. Okay? Each nation had a national language. More importantly, all those nations referred to here in Acts 2 were part of the table of nations from Genesis 10 that had been disinherited by Yahweh. And they were divided. At Pentecost, God is calling the nations back to himself. Babel is being undone. Let's back up in Acts 2.1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So we got these divided tongues that are falling on them, they're being filled with the Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Alright, so here you got a rushing wind, you got divided tongues as a fire. I think the wind and the fire that accompany the Spirit here in this text are similar to images we see in the Tanakh that are associated with God. The wind is a, a Associated with the presence of God, fire in the Tanakh is identified with the presence of God. It's a visible manifestation of Yahweh's glory and essence. Remember in the bush, the bush is on fire and Moses goes over here. what's going on here? That's God's presence. Now there's in these texts and Pentecost, there's two key terms in this passage that really connect it back to Babel in an unmistakable way. The flaming tongues are described as divided tongues as the fire appeared on them. The word divided here is diamerizo. This word is used in the Septuagint, but not in Genesis 11. It's found in Deuteronomy 32.8. So when the Most High divided the nation. So we got the same word there, diamerizo, and it's connecting them together. All right, these are connected with Babel and what happened there. Deuteronomy 32.8 is a description of what happened at Babel. The other term is the term bewildered in Acts. And they were bewildered. People were like, what is going on here? This is sunheo. It's the same word used in the Septuagint version of the Babel story in 11.7. And they're confused their languages. Same word. So he's connecting them together. I think this is a strong indication that Luke is drawing on the Septuagint, and specifically the Tower of Babel story in Genesis 11 and Deuteronomy 32.8, to describe the events of Pentecost. See, what happened here has some relationship to what happened at Babel. It is a direct reversal of it. Clearly, Pentecost is the reversal of Babel. First of all, the world comes to one place. Came to one place in Babel to war against God. They came in one place in Jerusalem to hear from God. And the reversals are, are really interesting and striking, I think. The people of the earth came to Babel with one language. The peoples of Israel during Pentecost. They come with all these languages, but they hear the gospel in one language, their own language. Everyone left the Tower of Babel not being able to understand one another's speech, but they left the temple understanding the disciples' speech. They understood it perfectly. The Lord dispersed those in Shinar in confusion, but He dispersed those at Babel with a unified message to their own people. He dispersed, uh, I don't know why I said Babel, he dispersed those at Pentecost with a unified message. Okay, they're going to their own people. Now they're leaving there, they're dispersing, and they're going to their people, not as a punishment, but they're taking the gospel back to these other areas. So Pentecost is the reversal of Babel. All those nations, to see, what you have, people, from, from Genesis 12, God calls Israel, the whole Tanakh's dealing with Israel, then we start the New Testament, and God says, okay, I'm going back to these people. I'm going to call them also. I'm going to get the nations back. And those nations that Yahweh had rejected and turned over to gods, he's calling them back to himself. People, the gospel is going beyond Israel to the nations. Look at Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. And he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, and the devil, and Satan. Now, this is the only time where these are all connected together here, That ancient serpents from the garden, the devil, and Satan. They're all the same divine being. And he bound him for a thousand years. Now, the thousand years represents the 40-year transition period from Pentecost to Holocaust. Okay, these numbers, a thousand is a representative number. It doesn't really mean a thousand years. He's talking about the time of transition from the Old to the New Covenant. And notice that it says Satan is bound through this time. And a lot of people get confused here. How is he bound? Is he bound so what? He's put away and he can't do anything? Look at specifically what it says. He's bound so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. So Satan is bound, and now the gospel can go to the nations. They, they didn't have the gospel. He was blinding them. All nations. All nations the gospel is going to now. So Babel's reversed. Yahweh judges the false gods, and he welcomes the very nations he had forsaken and dispersed in Genesis chapter 11. It's a beautiful story, people. And we also see we see many hints of this throughout the gospel. Luke tells them tells us that the Lord sends out the seventy. And again, the gods were the seventy. Those were the ones who came down. And so he's giving us hints over and over that Babel is being reversed and God is reaching out to the nations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us, Lord. I Lord, it's encouraging to me as a Gentile to know that. Even though we continue to sin and, God, to make you sick at times, you have called us back to yourself, you have loved us, you have made us your own, and we thank you for that, Lord. Help us to understand, Lord, your, your word, the scripture. I pray that we would be willing to spend enough time in it, that we'd be able to understand what it is you're saying. Open our eyes, Lord, that we may see you for who you are. I thank you, Lord, for this amazing reversal. Help us to understand how wicked men are, Lord, and so wicked that they would literally think they can attack you and overthrow you. God, I thank you that you sit sovereignly over the world we we live in. Thank you for your grace to us, Lord. Amen. Okay, questions, comments? Yes? Gary? I was just struck by how quickly... From Noah to Nimrod, the, um, they forgot. The trip to yeah, uh, yeah, well, they didn't forget because they were saying, you're not going to do that to us again. You know? yeah. But yeah, that's, I mean, men, I think it should prove to us, men are, their heart is only wicked, okay? The Imagination of the thought of his heart are wicked continually, <coughs> Genesis says, all right? And that's, that's shown in so many ways, you know? So we see in in the line of the king how one king is a great king and his son is just a disaster. And uh, it's like they don't catch on about being disciplined, you know. I mean they get in trouble and they call out to God and God hears them. I'm like, don't don't listen, God, they're just gonna be bad again. Don't listen to them. And he forgives them and he you know, gives them a good king and then they're right back at it again. So Mike? What's your take on you know, when you listen to Michael Heiser, is explaining it, the, the Hasatan, um, you know, there, there's these, the Nephilim, there's all of these divine beings in the Old Testament seem to be, the Hasatan almost seems to be like a collective group of opposers to God versus in the New Testament, you have this fully developed idea of a personal opposer, the devil, Satan, is like a singular person you know, so what's your take on well, that? In the Tanakh, you, don't, you will not get the idea that Satan is a bad guy. Like you said, Hasatan, the Satan. Okay, it basically means the accuser. In the Old Testament, God is called Hasatan. Okay, so this is not a, a, a bad individual. We don't get that idea from there. He's the accuser, yes. You know, he's like you know, bringing faults against Israel when they do wrong. You don't get that. That isn't the fact that Satan is evil does not really start to be developed until the intertestamental period. Then you start seeing that. And then it's full blown in the New Testament. This is an evil individual where it really starts giving us insight, you know, because we don't hear anything about the serpent in the garden until you get to Revelation, and he names them just, that's the devil and Satan. So and a lot of I think we just we have to be careful when we see Hasatan or Satan. Is this an evil being or is this just the accuser or an enemy? Because it can be an enemy. It can be an accuser, or it can be a divine being. Now, I think that that behind these people who were evil was a divine being who was controlling things, and we see that throughout the Scriptures. Daniel really gives us some insight into that. But we read back into it what we know know, from the New Testament. David? So why is Satan the devil, the ancient serpent? Why is he seems like he's solely credited with the deceiving of the nations when the nations were given over to individual gods. Was he, I guess, is he, is he the leader of God, per se? Well, I think uh, my understanding of that would be because at that time, we're talking particularly Rome, and yeah. I think Satan was the god over Rome. and right. That's why that was happening at that time. You know, that's where that's where things were happening at, Okay. Jerusalem was under the power of Rome. Rome was dominating everything. So, I, I, I mean, that's how I understand that. Oh, so, I guess what you're saying is because he was the God of Rome and Rome ruled so many of the nations? Yeah, they were all well, basically, yeah. It was, that was the world at that time. Right, so. yeah. Okay. Were they locked up? The ones we read about in Jude and Second Peter? Well, they are now. But it says, you know, Jesus went down and is it no, first, Peter. Peter, yeah, preaching yeah. the spirits in prison. He went down to the spirits from the time of Noah, it says. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that I think that at Genesis 6, Jude seems to indicate there were people, that they were locked up already at that time, waiting to be destroyed, you know, at the second coming. But yeah, they were, Jude gives us that idea. And that's the thing, Jude and Peter, they both quote from Enoch. Okay, so that's pretty important. Okay, it's right in the Bible. People freak out when you say anything about Enoch. But, you know, and again, I don't think Enoch's inspired, but it tells us, gives us a lot of understanding of things. Okay, and how they thought. Okay, what about Jasher? Have you read that? Yeah, um, and again, there you know, are these books accurate? We don't know. You know, I think they tell again, Jasher's quoted. Doesn't the book of Jasher say? You know, it's quoted in the Bible twice. You know, so uh, so I just think we. And I don't ever encourage people to read the pseudepigraphal works because most Christians don't even read their Bibles. And so until you've read your Bible, if you're reading your Bible on a regular basis, I would encourage you, to read some pseudepigraphal. You'll find it very fascinating, okay? Read the book of Adam and Eve. Read some of these books. You'll be, like, getting a different idea on some things. You'll be like, wow, that's really cool. But if you're not a Bible reader, don't, Please. Get, Jasher get in the has Jasher has them shooting the arrows at the sky, and, right. the, and the angels coming down blood on them. Well, and, they're and miles the, they're, high. the way it portrays it, it, pictures the men like David's mighty men and stuff. These guys are jumping up on top of walls on a castle. I mean, they're doing they're like supernatural beings. Okay, they're doing some incredible things, and you're like, oh, I never thought about them that way. But yeah, it's it's you'll get a you'll definitely get a different idea. Okay, I'm going through these. A lot of these things are saying there's no sound. I know. <laughs> no sound. No sound. No sound. I was wondering why I got so many text messages. They're all telling me there's no sound. I should have looked at these before the message. <laughs> yeah, we got that rumble. Tested on the replay. Yeah. How does Noah cursing Ham with Ham being? Was he the father? No, how does that? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't understand. You know what all that's about. Um, he definitely was cursed, and why was that? Uh, there's more. It's, it's not that he saw his father's nakedness. That that whole that phrase, seeing your father's nakedness, has to do with sleeping with your mother. Okay, so that's it's a little more than looking at something. Okay, so that's that's the picture there. So you see your father's nakedness. How do I see his nakedness? Uh, I slept with his wife, okay, so that's, that's the connection there. But Ham was the child, the child I mean, not Ham, but I don't know, I can't keep all the names straight. <laughs> but here we go, you know, Noah gets off the boat, him and his wife, three kids and their wives, and then everyone comes from there, Everybody. Okay, so you wonder how these other cultures get these stories. Again, they were scattered. Okay, I'm trying to get to some questions here. I just got so many. Oh, this is giving her two cents. Yeah, it's
1: giving it more than that. You're
0: supposed to be sleeping right now. Yeah, this is your nap time. No. She's talking back. Did you ever sleep during the message? So the, uh, the people at Babel were trying to climb to heaven, dude, so that they could become... They were trying to achieve sovereignty over God. So well, as in a the sense, Yeah, because the, the water... You can't get us if we're up here. The water... You drowned us. You can't drown us anymore. But I find it interesting. As a consequence, God sends... Lesser beings to rule over them. Right. As a consequence, I find that fascinating. Yeah, the yeah. gods that aren't very good—they're ruling over them then. You know, you read the and you know all the all the mythology here. I really think there's some truth behind the mythology. I think that they got this from the fact of you know this is what the stories were in different cultures. You know what actually took place. Okay, hang on, people. <laughs> John Mark from Northern California. Good morning. In making sense out of Genesis 10 and 11, as you stated, many people don't understand that the Hebrews use the literary device called recapitulate, recapitulation. John Eliaser uses it in Revelation 7. Right, you go back and they go back over things. Not, the, the Bible is not specifically in chronological order. They, they don't feel like they they don't care about chronology like that. And when you read the genealogies. <clears throat> They're giving you a genealogy that is important. There's names left out at times. You know, oh, that guy's not important. We're going to leave him out. So, you know, you got to be careful when, with genealogy. You have to understand, I guess, the Hebrew and how they see things so you can have better understand the Scripture. Yeah, there was a quote you used one time that really explained that thought process before, and I forget who it was by Dean again from, Californ- or Dean from California says, The Tower of Babel reminds me of some type of communication device. Once the languages were scrambled, it ended construction. Let me tell you something, people. I There's a lot of things in this world that we don't understand. A lot, okay? I mean... I see pictures of buildings that were built hundreds of years ago, and I'm like, that is an incredible, beautiful building. Who built that? We don't have that technology then. You know, there's just... There's so much more beyond that we don't get people. Just so much, you know. It's Good morning from Kingman, Arizona. I'm very interested in you doing a teaching on the line of Ishmael. I'm a kingdom Christian, but I love my neighbors and also comprehend that out of the three Arab, Arabic faiths, only two believe in the virgin birth, Christianity and Islam. Jews don't. So I'm trying to learn about Ishmael. Well, sorry, but I don't do personal requests. <laughs> i study what I'm interested in, because if I'm not interested in it, it's really hard to study it. Um, and, you know, normally we do verse by verse, and we're getting back to that, okay? We're going, we're going to go through First Peter, and then through Second Peter, and then when uh, something comes up and I need to throw something else in there, I'll do that. Someone says, is the Catholic Church Jesus Church? My opinion is no, okay? So many of the things the Catholic many churches the Catholic Church doc you can be a Catholic and be a Christian, okay? Because there there's Catholics, there's people in the Catholic Church that are Christians. They believe they trust Christ, but Catholic doctrine is just you know got some strange ideas there people and and it they they believe what Christ did on the cross was not enough. Yes, he died for your sins, but you have to do this and this and this to help him out. It wasn't enough. That's blasphemy. Stan? But I think, I guess the way I understand that, that means it's the Roman Catholic Church, not Catholic because... Right, of, not and Catholic and, meaning universal. Okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not the universal church, the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. I'm sure that's what you're yeah, talking you about. Go. Is Satan still bound today? Or what is his role today? He's toast. <laughs> <laughs> God fried him. In the second coming, that was... A, listen... All of these beings were trying to keep man separated from God. Once Christ died and once the Lord returned and redemption is complete, they got nothing. They're done. But he wiped them all out. Matthew 24, 29 and 30, he talks about the stars falling from heaven. That's the power. Those are the gods. Those are the false gods being destroyed at the second coming. He wiped them out. They're done. Now, different people have different ideas, okay? on this. That's my take. I don't think there's any demons today. I think they were all destroyed. Uh, I know some people give you a hard time believing that, but you know, that's, I really do believe that the gods and the demons were all destroyed. We we fight with our, our evil, you know, sinfulness of man. That's what we battle with. But, you know, I now, I know there's some in the community that teach the devil is in the lake of fire, but he's ruling things from there. Huh? I mean, if you're in the, what is, it, it, the lake of fire, doesn't sound good, right? But you're down there and you're still running things. What in the world? So, what's the purpose of throwing him in the lake of fire? Well, if he's still running stuff from down there, yeah, cut the internet off from down there. Somebody cut that cable so he can't send out his emails anymore. I just, I just think, you know, people have a hard time with Satan being gone, but that's because you don't understand how evil men are. Genesis eight twenty one says that. I think it's Genesis eight twenty one yeah the imagination and the thoughts of his heart are only evil continually that's man evil continually James said every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed it's it's, it's our lust within us is not we don't need Satan to make us do things bad okay and again he's not omnipresent he wasn't everywhere and you know. People got little demons running around everywhere making them do stuff. You know, stop blaming that, you know, and, and start taking responsibility for your actions. It's Flip Wilson's fault. He coined the phrase. I, I was in a restaurant, I was in a restaurant sharing with a couple of doctor and preterism. And she's like, you can see the gears ticking. And she goes, What does that mean about Satan? And I'm like, he's done, he's gone. She put it together. About a month later, she came to me and she goes, You know, my life is totally different since you told me that. I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, now that the devil's gone, I don't have him to blame anymore. I had to take responsibility. And if I, it's my fault, I cleaned some stuff up. I was like blown away. I'm like, that's awesome. You know, but that's the truth. If it's Satan, what do you, can you do about it? But if it's you, guess what? Make some changes. Stop blaming everybody else. You know, uh, and, and I mean, you can get really wacky out there, people. The, someone wrote a book, The Diary of an Exorcist and he told about all these demons, and one lady had the demon of dry hair, she had the demon of oily <laughs> hair, and they take turns, you know, tormenting her. I mean, it just got to be, it's so total nonsense, okay? The demon of post-nasal drip. I mean, they, they had all these demons in there, and I'm like, you just make a, you know, again, these, these gods were trying to stop redemption. That was their purpose. Not give you a flat tire so you can't get to church. You know, that wasn't their purpose. Was to stop redemption. Once redemption, you know, had, and the Bible says, had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't know, they didn't understand it. They thought, Well, we're gonna get him, we're gonna kill him. That's the exact point you're supposed to do, okay? And had they known they wouldn't have done that, people. That like the way it's So there was still Nephilim after the flood. Yes. And if you read Genesis six four it says, and afterwards. Now how I don't know. Were there I, I believe they were all killed in the flood, but I believe there was a second incursion. I can't prove that. That's just a theory. But somehow we got Nephilim after the flood, too. And how they made it through the flood, I don't know that. Some people say one of Noah's sons was half, you know, was a Nephilim. And I, I you know, I don't buy that. I just it tells us there was and David, that was the conquest of David. David was going to wipe out the Nephilim. That's what all the, that's why God said, get in there, and kill them all. Kill the babies, kill the, will, kill the children, wipe everybody out. People freak out over that. There's a purpose for this. So he's wiping out this hybrid race. Oh, and David Goliath. did wipe it out. Mm-hmm. Goliath was yeah, Goliath, he was a giant. <laughs> yeah, the um, king Og, Og of Bashan. He had some massive bed, you know. So yeah, there were, and I mean, today, you know, we're seeing people dig up skeletons of, of these giants. You know, I'm like, mm. right, you know, maybe they're making it up. I don't know. <laughs> I don't I don't believe unless I see it, and then I have to question it, you know? Good message today, Pastor Dave. I remember when I was watching in the chat room, we were eight people. Today, we topped off at 382. Wow. Cool. Eight people. You, you've been there for that long? Wow. Cool. Well, I appreciate you all watching. And again, if I say something you don't understand, go to our website, go to the search engine and put it in, and you'll pull up all the messages that we dealt with, you know, all that stuff on, and catch up on where we're at. Two questions. When you use the Tanakh as a reference, is that the same as the Septuagint? No. Tanakh is the Old Testament. And I'm sorry, I need to clarify this more often, I guess. I don't like saying Old Testament, because if it's old, it's no good, Okay. I mean, when I get something new, my old things I don't use it any much. I just think old gives us a bad idea. The Hebrews don't call it the Old Testament. Okay, it's their only testament. They call it the Tanakh. And so I try to use that Hebrew word just to, you know, not use the. I think old is derogatory. First testament. Yeah, I used to say that, but that's confusing. Is it is it your opinion that we might have any bloodline of the Nephilim alive and active today in our political and social culture? <laughs> Listen, people, that, I, I really, I, many times I'm going back over my doctrine because, am I sure there's no demons today? I mean, look at Congress. Look at the Senate. Am I sure there's no, and I mean, really, I'm telling you people, that troubles me because our, our government is one of the evil, Hollywood, evil, corporate America, so evil. I mean, what they're doing with children, the stuff that's going on now, child trafficking, and, you know, it's just it's sickening there's so much of this and it makes me think there's an organized evil it just seems like it. but listen no men are just evil men are evil and the more money you give them the more power they want the more money they want to the eat more evil they get and we have people that are whistleblowers coming out of these groups saying listen they are literally sacrificing and eating children and he said i drew the line i walked away i said i'm not doing that i'm not participating in that that's what these people do listen this is why they hate Trump. Okay, he's going after child traffickers. That's one of his main missions in life. And he's done a lot of it. So they hate him because that's Hollywood's all about that. You know, you're familiar with adrenochrome. They torture children. And while they're torturing them, they draw the blood out of them. It has adrenochrome and it keeps them young. They, Hollywood takes this stuff. It keeps them young. That's their drug. And so they kill children to get this drug. It's sick. It's hard to not believe that, you know, there's demonic forces behind that. But again, Genesis tells us men's the thoughts and the imaginations of his heart are only evil continually. And we see it. And you can take a person and give them some money or, you know, give them a little power and watch what happens. You know, they can absolutely go crazy. Absolutely go crazy. And the thing is, you know, I believe most people in Congress and in the Senate, they're either being blackmailed because they did something wrong and they got caught, Or they're being bribed. They're being paid off. How do these people get rich, come out, go into Congress and come out a millionaire? How does that happen? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, that's a little sideshow there. Yeah, they, they do everything for themselves. Yeah, there's definitely demonic and these people worship Satan. Doesn't mean there is Satan. They just work. that's their idea, that's their goal, that's what they want to do. Yeah. The baby wants to worship. Yeah, she does. No, she just wants to compete with me. She's totally quiet until I start preaching. Okay? She and then she smiles at me like I'm a I'll give you some competition, you know. But she did what you get the message today. Yeah, she did. She was. Grandpa kept her quiet. She was saying, ah, da, da. This is from the blue-collar scholar. Bob (laughs) says, Heiser's take is that the angels Jude and Peter speak of were the original rebels from Genesis 6. These are not the same as the 70 gods appointed over the nations in Babel in Genesis 10. The 70 from Genesis 10 would be the rulers and principalities Paul speaks of in the New Testament. They were still around. Right. Okay. Good job, Bob. Thank you. Appreciate that. They said it was just the walkers involved in With Genesis 6 procreation that yeah. were in captivity or being bound. I'm sorry. Say that again. So Bob, <laughs> Bob was saying it was only the angels involved in. Hazard was taking the angels that Jude and Peter talk about were the original rebels of Genesis okay. 6. So they were the ones that bound. Was, the they Genesis 6. Right. They were the changed. ones bound from that. You know, that was a horrible thing. They left heaven. Right. They came down and procreated with... Now you got... And by the way, that's where people believe demons come from. Okay? The angels come down. The gods... I don't even like the term angel. Angels are lesser rank. But the gods come down. They intermarry with these men. They have an offspring. Half God, half man. When that offspring dies, because half of it's God, that part stays around. That's the demon. That's where demons came from. They can't put it. In Sacramento, they have a building called the Ziggurat. It is also called the Department of General Services. I call it the Tower of Evil. People, you can see this all around the country, okay? All around the country. The Washington Monument, okay? This, what is that supposed to represent? Well, study that. You'll be a little bit amazed, okay? There's just evil symbols so everywhere, you know. people, it's right, it's right in our face. This is amazing the connection of Babel to the speaking in tongues. Today the devil is using deep state globalists <laughs> is the devil's attempt to rebuild the tower. Yeah, they're they're trying to they're trying to rebuild humanity is what they're trying to do, yeah. you know. Trangy, Did you see. hear at at, uh, at the World Economic Forum that these guys yeah. are talking, you know who they're afraid to the death of? To Trump. Over and over, Trump. Trump. If Trump gets in, we're gonna be ruined. If Trump, I'm like, yes, you go be. Hey Trump. <laughs> I said, Abrahamic meaning Abraham. Thanks for your response, nevertheless. I see you're not that interested in answering questions, like I thought. <laughs> I answered your question. You asked me to preach a message on it, and I'm like, I just, you know, thank you, but it's not something I'm interested in preaching a message on. Wow. Okay. Yeah, um. questions need to be related to the message too. Yeah, that would be nice. I mean it, but I understand we have a lot of new people and some of them you know get confused. Yeah, but, but it can be it can be related to, to the message. Alive cool. we need to keep it related to the message. Mm-hmm. Someone says, when is the little while that Satan was loose? That was at the end of the millennium. In other words, that's all done, people. It's all finished, it's all done. Okay. Uh, <laughs> How's yeah, the Tribulation. Okay, that's the Great the great Tribulation. Three and a half years, Satan's loose. Um, the Tower of Babel and the worship of Nimrod seem a familiar story today. Nimrod established the original New World Order in rebellion against God. Is this not happening in the world today with the leaders of today working toward a New World Order? One ruler, one like... Yeah, it is. Again, evil just keeps recycling, okay? They don't come up with anything new. Great message, wow! What are your thoughts on people speaking in tongues today? Thank you, Sarah, North Carolina. Uh, not related. To the I don't. I don't think speaking in tongues today is the. I believe the spiritual gifts were for the foundation of the church. They were operative during the forty years of the transition period. Then they ended when the Lord returned. Okay, the gifts were supernatural. Now listen, I was a tongue speaker. Okay. I I worked at CBN. I was a counselor over there. They took me into the prayer room and they taught me how to speak in tongues. Okay? And I can still do it today, all right? Shandala, she bought a Hyundai, you know? (laughs) Listen, it's people... I I don't think it's demonic. I don't think it's evil. I think it's learned behavior. If you're hanging around a bunch of people and they all think speaking in tongues proves that you're a good Christian, what are you going to do? You're going to speak in tongues. Peer pressure, okay? And I've seen it work, okay? Mm -hmm. But I don't think there's... Listen, first of all, yeah, first of all, God doesn't need you to say anything. He can read your mind, okay? He knows your thoughts before you even think of them. So you don't need some prayer language, okay? You just need to talk to God. And I I just... There's no need for it today, okay? There was a purpose for it, and it's it's over. (laughs) And the gifts are gone today. Doesn't mean God doesn't heal. Doesn't mean God can't... But the gifts are not around, okay? Mm -hmm. And if someone has a gift of healing... Like these TV preachers, Mm -hmm. send them to the hospital. Okay? That's where they go, the hospital. Mm -hmm. They don't need to be out in a tent somewhere, you know, (laughs) charging money for people to do little healings on. I don't, I'm not sure I understand this. Dean this from Calvary says, All done requires a walk of faith. Most still walk by sight. Yeah, it's, it's, you're right. I mean, we see things and we try to put, well, how does this work? You, know, you see how evil our government is, and you're like, why? You know, mm. Is the devil running this thing or what? Mm. Does the Bible say anything about race mixing? The reason for my question is that the media, which is clearly run by those who call themselves Jews, and are extremely anti-Christian, promote race mixing, relentless in both television, print, and media. By race mixing, I, I, the race—I mean—I think they, I think they do the opposite. I think they try to promote division and, and problems between the races. They want us to have a race war. They want us to fight each other. You know, I mean, the Bible doesn't say anything about that. Okay, you know, if you if you're a Christian, you marry non-Christian. That's mixing races. Okay, don't do that. Okay, but Christian, you can marry anybody you want. When I was a youth pastor at a church, a guy came up, visited our church, and then he came to me afterwards. He says, I got a a friend that goes to my church, and he wants to be baptized. Could he come here and be baptized? And I'm like, why don't you baptize him? They said, we can't. I said, why not? He's black. I'm like, "Uh, excuse me? We can't put him in the baptism waters that we use. This is serious. A church right here. I mean, a couple miles from here. We can't baptize him. He's black. I said, you know what? You don't have a church. That ain't a church you go to. If you, that is. So he can go to your church. He can get saved at your church. Once they're saved, they gotta leave. Yeah, they gotta leave. Talk about making someone sick. You know, this is churches doing this in the name of the Lord. And you wonder why you know people are so screwed up today.